This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. Today is going to be a very unusual and special program in that we are going to have a feast of great writing. At least we're going to do our best to talk about some great writing. First of all, with the legendary Ray Bradbury, who passed away last week. We traveled down to Los Angeles some years ago to interview Ray Bradbury in his home, and we're going to air that for segments one and two today. It was a pretty lengthy interview, so we're going to dispense with our usual uh, program beginnings, which I guess just, just gives us that many more jokes and anecdotes to do on next week's program. Luckily for us, although we'd normally talk about on this day in history on June 14th, thankfully nothing happened on this day. Well, maybe a couple, but they weren't important. And in segment three, we'll speak with Dr. Catherine Holvine, CSUS Professor Emeritus of History, and the founder of The Readers of Homer. There will be an event at Fairy Tale Town next Friday, June 22nd, an all-nighter, in fact, where people will read from the Odyssey. This is open to the public. It's a very interesting event. We'll be talking with Catherine about it in segment three. But for now, let's go back in time for that interview we conducted some years back with the legendary Ray Bradbury. One of the great joys of doing a radio program uh, for KDVS is the chance we have to go out and meet really, truly interesting people, people who have made a difference over the years, people who have changed society in some cases, and uh, our guest in this segment is certainly an example of that, the legendary science fiction author Ray Bradbury. I think it's a good bet that almost anyone listening to this program at the moment has read some of the works of Ray Bradbury, which include Fahrenheit 451, Dandelion Wine, The Martian Chronicles, and Something Wicked This Way Comes. He has numerous short story collections, having written well over 300 short stories with numerous screenplays and teleplays to his credit as well. If that wasn't enough, Ray Bradbury has numerous published works of poetry. He's written plays. He even wrote the screenplay for the 1956 John Huston film, Moby Dick. Assisting me with this interview is one of Radio Parallax's Los Angeles correspondents, Bruce Bronstein. Mr. Bradbury, thank you so much for inviting us into your home. It's a pleasure. Thank you. My interest uh, was rekindled in, in, in your work when I read an excellent uh, biography of a man you knew slightly, but had a chance to, to observe back in the 1930s. Jack Parsons. Oh, sure, of course, yeah. The author, George Pendle, spoke to you. I guess you corresponded by email about, about Parsons. And I was privileged to be at the, uh, the Planet Fest event hosted by the Planetary Society where they landed the Spirit Rover on Mars. You were in attendance, and they did a reading from the Martian Chronicles. That's correct. They're a wonderful group. In reading this book about Parsons, and, and Bruce has talked about Jack Parsons, how they jokingly refer to JPL as Jack Parsons' laboratory, back in the 1930s, but it, it never really struck me till I, till I read this book how literally true it is that those who wrote works of science fiction are responsible for the development of going into space, this build a space program. Oh, yeah. I, I bumped into a lot of the astronauts over a period of time, 
and I discovered that they were reading me and H.G. Wells and Jules Verne and Robert Heinlein and two or three others. But I felt so damn proud that I was an influence on these young men. I went down to Texas and I was at the Space Center there in January of 1967. And Life Magazine sent me down to interview all the people and to look at the, the, the grounds and see what they were doing. So we had a, a press meeting with the Life Magazine editor there with 70 astronauts, all unknown, no names, you see, because they weren't famous yet. Right. They were just people. And, but I was sitting in the back of the room, and when the Life editor said, and I'm very pleased to tell you that we have with us today, in the back of the room is Ray Bradbury. 60 of the astronauts jumped to their feet and ran back and surrounded me. Can you imagine how I felt? I was embarrassed and I blushed, but oh God, it was beautiful. Then I spent time two or three days later with John Glenn, and he offered to fly me home in his own jet. Wow. What an offer, you know. But I'd never flown up at that time. I was afraid of flying. So I turned down John Glenn, and he said, Well, Ray, he said, the stagecoach leaves for Tombstone in the morning. And every time I've seen John Glenn since, he looks at me and says, Tombstone. <laughs> so but I, I learned to fly later. I'm sorry that I didn't have that chance a real chance, and took it. I didn't. It would have been like his own private jet. Well, it was his own jet, yeah. Here we were in this room watching, with holding our breath, literally, as they were about to land this robot on, on Mars. And of course, at that time, they were commemorating how people had seen things like this from so long ago, and, and, and that's where they read from, your, uh, from your, your novel. What was that like for you to be in the room waiting with all of us to see if we were making a landing on Mars? I always knew it would happen, and but it was wonderful to have it actually occur. And here we are two years later, and these dune buggies are still on the surface of Mars, wheeling around. Well, the extra thing about this, out at Universal, they're planning a new version of the Martian Chronicles. They've owned the rights for eight years. They've got 16 scripts. <laughs> and I call them every once in a while. I say, for God's sake... We're going to civilize Mars before you do the damn film. So there are all these delays with the actual Martian landing and with making the film over. So I've learned to be patient. Well, I understand that Fahrenheit 451 is actually, again, in production. They're doing, going to do a remake. Can you tell us about that? Mel Gibson bought the rights on that from me eight years ago, too. And there are 16 scripts <laughs> on Fahrenheit 451, and, and each one's worst. And you don't need 16 scripts. You know what you do? You shoot the novel. I knew Sam Peckinpah 20 years ago, and he wanted to do one of my novels as a film. I said, Sam, how are you going to do it? He said, rip the pages out of the book and stuff them in the camera. I said, yes, I'm a film writer. I've, I've seen every film ever made. My mother was a maniac for motion pictures. So she started taking me to movies in 1923 when I was three. I grew up in Lon Chaney and Charles Chaplin and all the really great people. 
And when I was five, I saw The Lost World with these dinosaurs, and it affected my life forever, huh? The whole rest of my life. So, and these people come up to me, and they have my properties, and they don't do anything with them. And Sam Peckinpah knew what to do, but he couldn't get the money. How did you like the uh, the 19, I guess 1966, was it, Francois Truffaut version of Fahrenheit? It's a beautiful film in many ways. The main problem comes, he did double casting. He had Julie Christie play two roles. Very confusing. You can't tell the girl from the wife. And anyway, he left out the most important thing, of the teenage girl who affects Montag's life. Huh? And it's got to be a teenager, though. See, the fun comes from a man who doesn't know books. and He's burning them. But this teenage girl, Clarice McClellan, comes along. She's very naive. She's a romantic sap. She lives in the clouds, but she knows the weather of time. And she describes all this to Montag, and she wakes him up without knowing it. But if you don't have that in the film, all the fun is out. You don't want an intellectual woman teaching him about books. That's too easy. But it's got to be a sappy girl who's in love with life. So the film's got to be made over, and Clarice McClellan has got to be the center. I loved a lot of the other parts of the film and the score by Bernard Herrmann is fantastic. And the ending of the film is one of the most beautiful endings on any film ever made because you've got the beautiful score by Bernard Herrmann coming up during this fall of snow and all the people, the book people, are out walking around in the snow remembering their favorite books. And it brings me to tears every time I see it. So that part of the film is gorgeous. So let's do the rest over and do it right this time. What about The Sound of Thunder? That was one of the, great, the greatest stories ever. The, the DVD of Sound of Thunder. All right, to show you how they handle it, try to find my name on here. My name's not on a goddamn DVD. How are you going to sell it? This story has been in 100 anthologies during the last 50 years. Every child in America has read the story. And when they made the film, they didn't put my name in the ads. They didn't put my name on the DVD. Now, how are you going to sell this to all those children that read me? That's how naive the studio people are. That is shocking. Yeah. I understand Gone with the Wind, they left Margaret Mitchell's name out of the whole Oscar ceremony. That's right. That's right, yeah. They're all college-educated. They think they know what they're doing. I've met all the people at Universal that are in charge of the Martian Chronicles. They all graduated from college. They all know more than I do because I never made it to college, you see. Yeah. And so they're stupid in their brilliance. Francis Coppola, he puts the name of the author above, his, above the title. Like Mario Puzo is the godfather. Yeah. On the plane uh, coming down here, Mr. Bradbury, I was, I was thumbing through uh, Sam Weller's, Weller's book, the, the Bradbury Chronicles. He looks like he was very thorough in, in his research. Wonderful. He came out once a month, every month for four years. We had a platonic love affair. That's why the book is so good. He spent so much time here. Before he was born, his father read The Illustrated Man to him when he was in the womb. <laughs> That's why the book is so good. <laughs>
There's a quote I wanted to just run past because it made me laugh out loud on the airplane. He paints a picture of you having moved out here. You're a teenager. You're, you're on roller skates ahead of your time, uh, skating around Los Angeles, hanging out in front of the studios. And at one point, with your autograph book, you catch W.C. Fields coming out of the studio. He signs your book and says, there you are, you son of a bitch. That's right. <laughs> he, he actually said that. Yes, he did, yeah. But he did sign it. Oh, God, yeah. Well, I've got thousands of autographs. See that box down there? Yes. There's 500 autographs there of all the famous people in Hollywood when I was 13 years old. And you, you actually had to chase Marlena Dietrich down at one point. Oh, yeah. I'm the only autograph collector that ever made it over the wall and became a screenwriter. All those other people, nothing ever happened to them. Well, can you, can you tell us a little about that whole L L.A. milieu? I guess you, you, uh, you piled around, you, you convinced, uh, as a teenager, you convinced George Burns to let you come and watch his uh, rehearsals. Yeah, I, I, I wrote scripts for the Burns and Al radio show. I was in junior high school. I was, I was uh, 13 years old. And every Wednesday I would go down to the Burns and Al broadcast, and I'd turn in a script for George Burns, and I'm sure he never read them, but he treated me kindly, and he introduced me to Gracie, and this went on for a whole year until I was 15, and they actually used one of my jokes on the Burns and Allen radio show when I was 15 years old. So 40 years later, I was at the um, Ambassador Hotel giving an award to Steven Spielberg at, one, at a luncheon, and I, in the middle of the award ceremony, I looked over in the corner and I saw George Burns over there. And I said, I stop everything. I got to tell you about this nice man that when I was a teenager treated me as if I were a genius. And George Burns read my scripts and treated me sweetly and nicely. And I said, I want to give him my own personal award today. Thank you, George. When the program was over, George Burns came running up to me. He said, was that you? Was that you? I remember you. I'll be darned. And we embraced for the first time in 40 years. I'll be darned. That's, well, he remembered you. Oh, God, yeah. Wow. Do you wow. remember the joke that they used? At the end of every show, they had a closing routine, which was 30 seconds long. And this little routine I wrote for them, uh, Gracie makes noises like she's fainting. And George says, Gracie, what's wrong? Oh, oh my gosh, she's fainted. Get a glass of water. Gracie, Gracie, say something. So, Gracie, say something. She says, this is the Columbia Broadcasting System. <laughs> that was the end of the show. And you're 15, and this goes out all over the nation. Your joke. That's right. Wow. Well, well, back in the 1930s, I understand you were like 18 years of age, and you sort of fall into the, uh, the science fiction writers club headed by Forrest Ackerman. Can you tell us about Mr. Ackerman and the club? Oh, God, yeah. I saw a notice at a bookstore in Hollywood, and I went down to a meeting. They met every Thursday night uh, at the Clifton's Cafeteria, which is still down on Broadway, and the food is still damn good. And it cost me 10 cents for a meeting, and I didn't have money for food, and the Clifton's Cafeteria would give you a free meal if you asked for it. So I got a free meal every time I went there. And I met all the famous writers, and I was still in my last year in high school, and I met Robert Heinlein, and he became my friend and my teacher. 
and Edmund Hamilton and Lee Brackett, and they all became my friends and my teachers when I was 17, 18, and 19 years old. So I had a wonderful relationship, and that caused me to really become a better writer. So you're really at ground zero of the sci-fi world here in, in Los Angeles. Of all the other science fiction writers, what do you think would be the greatest science fiction story, um, in your opinion? Recent ones or old ones? Old, old ones, let's well, say. Uh, Jules Verne, of course, and H.G. Wells. H.G. Uh, Wells is a very important writer because he was paranoid. And teenage boys are paranoid, and they need to have a lunatic in charge. <laughs> and which, which story would you think is the greatest science fiction story of all time? Oh. Do you have a favorite? Well, Invisible Man is one. Yeah. And, uh, and then he did a wonderful story, uh, The Man Who Could Work Miracles. But these are, in a way, fantasy, not science fiction. And right. he did a book called Things to Come, which made a science fiction film, which came out when I was 16, and imp caused me to continue with my love about space travel, because at the end of the film, uh, Raymond Massey is playing a character, and this other guy stands with him, and their children, the, the son and the daughter, are going off in a moon rocket to the moon. And one of the men says, is this all there is? And then the, the, the Raymond, Cassie, Raymond Massey character says, no, that is not all there is, that we have to choose the stars or the graveyard. Which, is, which shall it be, the stars or the dust? And all the voices rise up and sing, which shall it be? Which, and I knew the answer when I staggered out of the theater. I was 16. It had to be the stars. And I, I hadn't sold my first short story yet. And I dug in and continued writing and sold my first story on my 21st birthday. And part of it was due to that film. It was a remarkable film. This might be a good place to take a short break. We'll continue our interview with Ray Bradbury after that break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stick around.